This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass. You can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky. A few cotton wool clouds. Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky. Filling it with song. Higher and higher. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? My guest is Chris Becker. He's a scientist and inventor. He has a PhD in chemistry from UC Berkeley. He's done postdoctoral work at MIT, and he's the author of Healing with Psychedelics Essays and Poems on Spirituality and Transformation. So, The book starts out talking about trauma and how that led you to addiction and then eventually to seek help, therapy, and guided psychedelic therapy. And at the opening of the book, you have this quote from Rumi, the cure to the pain is in the pain. I would love for you to talk about the meaning of that for you in the context of your experience and what you've learned about that. Uh, thank you, Tony. Thank you, first of all, for having me on today. I appreciate it. That quote is a very short quote, but very powerful one, because it's really uh, kind of the key to unlocking a painful past and healing. And in short, it means that you can't cure a psychological trauma, uh, can't heal the psyche unless you revisit the pain. But of course, that's one thing to say, but you want to revisit the pain in a way that is healing and not re-traumatizing. So there's a whole kind of a envelope about how, how you do that. And so for me, for myself, and for a lot of people, we kind of don't even realize we're in pain. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't, or sometimes we do kind of only halfway. So uh, pain could be all kinds of things like depression and anxieties and addictions, and that was the case for me, but particularly drinking and also uh, quite a bit of marijuana use. In drinking, I was a functional alcoholic in the sense that I um, had a perfectly good career. I worked during the day, was always sober in the daytime, but would drink in the evening. And I kind of knew that, and I kind of also in a lot of denial. A lot of us are in denial, so we're not we're only kind of half conscious, maybe you might say, of the pain. Although sometimes it gets very severe and we do realize we're in deep depression or we're just a compulsive disorder or, or you know, these kind of things. So there's a whole spectrum, I think, of course, of, of the pain level and also the consciousness of the pain. But um, we can talk about the path to uh, to realizing the pain and then, of course, 
the path to healing it, which are really almost sort of two different things. Um, But uh, for me, it was a wake-up call. And one of the reasons I wrote this book and want to talk to to you and other people is is to hope that people don't wait for that wake-up call, that they uh, come to realize that they are in pain of some sort that's uh, really limiting their life and that they take action to heal that. And so in my case, it was a wake-up call in the sense my wife and brother said, hey, you have to quit drinking. So I was forced, you might say I was forced into confronting my pain and then forced into uh, finding a healing path. In our culture, we tend to be averse to therapy and and seeking help for things like emotional or psychological trauma or distress. That's pretty stigmatized in our culture, and it's connected to a kind of stoicism, particularly on the male side of, of the human spectrum, to suffer with your pain and not complain, not talk about it not share it with others, just kind of grin and bear it. So how is that for you? I mean, you're a trained scientist in the scientific world. um, It tends to be very materialistic. and, And I wonder how that may have influenced the way you related to your trauma and your pain and the distress and dissociation in, in your life. Right. Well, I think that's a really wonderful question and good way to begin because first, in general, and then I'll try to get to myself more specifically, I just want to say something about the stigma in our society about seeking help for mental health. And somehow, and I think you could probably write a bunch of books, maybe probably people have, uh, about how the stigma has developed Maybe a lot of it is puritanical background for the country. There's a sort of self-reliance myth that, oh, we can do it ourselves. I'll just pull myself up by the bootstraps, and I, or I should pull myself up by the bootstraps. And then the stigma, it's really severe. It's slowly changing for the better, which is great. But, for example, it wasn't long ago, and probably even today, if a major political figure was running for office and somebody found out that they had seen, even maybe 20 years prior, if they had seen a psychotherapist or a psychologist, that would be enough to knock them out of the political race. I mean, if you think about that, how severe and wrong it is. Because while our society has gotten to the point where we think if I have a little problem in my shoulder, people go to a physician with the idea that there's a body problem. And of course, many of our physical illnesses also, people should know if they don't already, many of our physical illnesses are actually from coming from our psyche that, you know, because the mind and the body are not separate. And a lot of the healing that maybe we'll talk about in more detail actually involves the body as well as the mind. So anyway, there is this terrible stigma that if you need to go see a, a therapist, there's something wrong with you. You're defective. You're a, a less than okay person. You're just you're just not right. And that's a terrible stigma because it keeps people from healing. And then you see manifestations in, uh, I could say, the political theater we see today. 
you could say it in the opioid epidemic. These are really manifestations of large-scale trauma. They're not because the people are stupid or they're immoral or they have bad ethics. It's because they're in pain. And so we, you know, you and I and many other people are doing our, our little parts to try to help society come to the understanding that it's important and that the whole mental health area needs to be treated with love and understanding and that, you know, I say conservatively, the majority of people need help. And it's something that almost nobody uh, escapes some psychological trauma or pain, especially in childhood, but also it can be an adult. Just for example, COVID, we could even talk about COVID and the trauma that that is causing. So there's plenty of need and I hope more acceptance in time for people seeking mental health help. And uh, that's a good thing because we're people and we're connected. We're not individual islands. We're, we're connected to other people. That's how, we, that's how we're built. And that's how we heal, too. So, but back to myself, being a, a scientist, I have a Ph.D. in physical chemistry. It's very materialistic, as you alluded to. And so it's not exactly conducive to, to this type of, of mental health healing. And I, I was in denial and avoided it. But I also had a sense in deep, deep down somewhere in my heart or my psyche that there's a place for these things. And it, it turns out for, I don't think quite coincidentally, I have uh, some friends who are psychologists and psychotherapists since college. So... There was some sort of affinity I had for that. And then I also got into meditation early in my 20s. So I knew I was a seeker even early on. It had this general vague sense something was missing. So even though I was in the heart, what people would call the hard sciences, I can't say on reflection that I really had some vague feeling that something was missing and that I needed some path to better health. So you've experienced, and there are, you know, many different types of therapies and ways of healing trauma. Um, you began yourself with meditation, not necessarily to directly address your trauma or pain, although a lot of people are driven to meditation and spiritual seeking because of their suffering. Um, there's also talk therapy which often takes many years. And then there's psychedelic therapy, which is relatively new, or it's actually been around, but then since the 60s, but it was stopped and it's resurfaced again. People are, are experimenting with it again. And people are having experiences of dramatic healings within just a few sessions, perhaps even just one session even. From your perspective as a scientist, how do you see psychedelics helping to take us to the deeper levels of healing that we need to go to, you know, to reveal what's often deeply buried emotional and psychological trauma and to accomplish the kind of healing that we need and that is actually possible within just a few sessions. What's your understanding of that? My understanding, as I sit here today, is 
Our psyche is composed, uh, you know, Freud talked about these things and it's been, you know, modified a little bit over time. But basically, our psyche has a conscious level and an unconscious level. And that's very real. And there's a very big part of our unconscious that drives our conscious behavior that we're quite unaware of. These are what uh, psychologists call schemas or organizing principles. Some people use the word personalities. I wouldn't use that word, but I think people will understand when I say that. And important when I, when I say that, that these are not fixed in stone, although most of us live our whole lives without changing them, but they are not fixed in stone. They are subject to change. So back to your, your question, Tonio, about psychedelics. These are, I think of them as medicines. There's this, uh, again, societal stigma about uh, thinking of them as drugs, and there was a whole war on drugs. And you mentioned the 50s and 60s, but I think the listeners should also be reminded that these medicines have been around for millennia. And they were used in cultures all over the world, including Europe, before, you know, the last few hundred years. And they would usually be used in a very respectful and a controlled way in a society with elders who were trained. So anyway, just that's the historical perspective. So just from the war on drugs around 1970, the last 50 years are just a kind of a, a blip in time of uh, abnormality. So again, not looking at these as recreational drugs, which was part of the problem in the 70s, and still is a problem today, I think, but looking at them as sacred medicines. They have the power to open up the unconscious. And that's where a lot of the trauma resides. And we may have some memories that are in the conscious, but until we really start to work with the unconscious and bring it into the conscious and, and, and work with it in a skillful way, very skillful way, with a loving container, and we can talk about some of the details about how the therapy is actually practiced, until we are able to connect with the unconscious, we are just uh, not going not gonna to heal it. It's just the way our minds and our psyche work. So, and people who have any question about that, they can think about their dreams, you know, what's going on in their dreams, and do they remember their dreams, and why are their dreams a certain way, and why are they changing, and what all kinds of maybe weird stuff's happening in our dreams. That's all the unconscious talking to us. So I think the bottom line, and to, to wrap that part, is um, because the unconscious is so important in how we function, these medicines, when you skillfully have the ability to open that up in a way that is safe and supported and allows this kind of deep healing really relatively quickly, that otherwise is very, I, wonder, I don't want to say impossible, but very difficult to heal. So again, I'm really curious about, you know, from, from your scientific and practical perspective, how do psychedelics open up our experience of the unconscious or open up the unconscious for us? Right. Well, first of all, that's not my specific area of expertise, although I am a scientist and I do read the original literature. And, but uh, let's say, for example, in Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, he reproduces a, a color image that's taken from a study, I forget exactly where, I think it's out of the UK, where people did what they call fMRI, in other words, their brain imaging with an MRI machine. 
under the influence of the psychedelic, and they compared you know, with and without the administration of the psychedelic. And it's a really striking color image in that book. And what it shows is a huge, huge difference in the amount of neural connections that are happening in the brain under the influence of the psychedelic. I think it was psilocybin in that case, but in any event, we know from a scientific point of view, for those who really like the hard sciences, that these medicines really open up the brain in connections that otherwise just don't happen or or happen in a very, very slow and, and weak way. So that's some of the scientific underpinning that we have to understand that, you know, this isn't just voodoo. This is, I mean, this is actual how the brain is being affected in a, in a good way by these medicines that, that can allow the conscious to reach what's happening in the unconscious and actually heal. We talk also about neuroplasticity, the fact that the brain can change. And like I was saying earlier about personalities or schema, how we behave, although many people go to the grave without changing, it is possible to make these changes for a healthier and a happier life. So there's really good science behind this. So it sounds like what you're saying is is that these sacred medicines um, accelerate the neural connections in our brain? Well, um, maybe make new ones or make new ones and also make parts of the brain talk to each other that ordinarily are not talking to each other. I think that's a very kind of superficial, but also accurate way of saying it. I mean, then the detail would be really getting into the exact neurochemistry and the real particular neural networks that are, that are active. And that's, that's not my expertise, that level of detail. But I do know from reading and the stories and that that picture in Michael Pollan's book is a great one. If anybody has that book or wants to get it, it's a great book. You'll see that color image there, and it's just graphically striking in terms of the amount of neural connections that happen when a subject has taken psilocybin. So it sounds kind of like these uh, substances have a superconductor effect in the brain. <laughs> I like that image. Yeah, I think you can say that. Superconductor, but also, yeah, superconductor, but also it opens all the gates is another way maybe to say it too, that um, everybody gets to join the party. <laughs> kind of blows it's open not, the it, doors. It opens the, perfect, opens the doors. Yes, just like Aldous Huxley's book, right? The Doors of Perception. Exactly, yeah. blowing open the doors of perception. So, so at this point, now that we have a, a bit of a rooted scientific understanding of this, we can then use these medicines in a guided and deliberate way with people who are trained to facilitate this kind of work. And that's where this really, really gets interesting. Right. So, you know, part of the problem with what happened around 1970 and people like Timothy Leary and so on was basically freaked out culture is because the culture wasn't ready. The culture, the Western culture that existed at that time, it was, first of all, in a wonderful transition in our time, you know, from the repression of earlier years to, let's say, flower power, 
and really good things, but also it got a little wild and out of control. And we didn't, as in Western society, have the context for how to use these substances, which are very powerful. And so, you know, it freaked out culture, but that happened. But now uh, we know, and especially with the help of indigenous cultures, like the Mazatec culture in Mexico, where some of the people have been trained, where this uh, culture of healing has been going on for thousands of years, by understanding how it's used in a respectful and responsible and effective way, people now are understanding how to bring that into Western society. And so that, fortunately, I fell into. I mean, I went looking for it, and it was only because my wife and brother pushed me to do something about my drinking that I went looking for it. But I did go out there and looking, look for it, and Michael Pollan's book was very good. It was like a light in the dark to say, this is a, this is a way you can go. And Michael Pollan talks about addiction and depression, anxiety, and so on in his book. So I, so I kind of felt it was possible. So the way this works now, maybe to get into at least the first, first level and we can go more, uh, the way this works now is this is, not, this is not do it yourself. This is not recreational. This is a very careful and respectful way of healing. And the people who do this work, they're very well trained. I don't think anybody is accepted in the community without at least two or more years of training. So these people usually are trained in psychotherapy. They're trained in also traditional healing arts with these medicines and uh, physiology and body work and energy work. They have trained in a variety of modalities. And there's, um, I think the, some of it goes back and a little bit is also influenced in uh, Western psychotherapy by the humanist uh, tradition that Carl Rogers uh, sort of started, which is that a lot of the healing takes place with a loving container. You have to have, first of all, you have to have a relationship with the therapist, a genuine, a genuine, warm and trusting relationship. So that happens before any medicine happens. You really need to establish that relationship. And, and if it doesn't feel right, then you have to go find somebody else. And so that's important because these medicines are taken at pretty high doses, safe doses, but they're pretty high doses. You're lying on your back. If it's daytime, you have eye shades on. This is all introspection. Uh, there's some music that may be played. We can talk about music maybe a little bit later. But So it's introspection, pretty high doses, and the guide or therapist is there with you. And they're with you not just physically. They're with you emotionally. And they, and they provide a loving, safe container so that when you, uh, when you revisit trauma events, it's done in a way that provides... Uh, I think some people would call it a missing experience. That is, uh, that trauma can be revisited in a way where there's a loving support. And that's the missing experience, especially, well, not just especially, but for childhood trauma, which is so common, but also it can be adult trauma that we experience. And so the whole, uh, con- we call container sometimes, is uh, safe. There's nobody going to bang on the door, or if you're outside, nobody's going to come in and walk in on you so you're safe environment. And we can talk some more about the preparation and the integration after. But in, the, in that container where the, the therapy, the active therapy session happens, there has to be loving presence 
full, unconditional, loving presence of the guide with you. And if the guy, sometimes the guide is, you know, they are skilled and trained. So sometimes they just need to leave you alone. Uh, sometimes they will need to uh, hold your hand or put their hand over your heart or whatever it is they'll be able to, uh, to figure out and support the patient or the client in that way. So as you were describing that, I had a flash on that old movie, It's a Wonderful Life. A Jimmy Stewart movie? Yes. When he decides that he's going to end his life because his life has fallen apart, because his bank has failed, and an angel comes to him and walks him through his pain in a way. It takes a slightly different tack on this, but again, it's very similar to this principle of of having a loving presence with you as you experience your pain, the kind of pain that, that may cause you to want to kill yourself. Mm-hmm. And, right. And without that kind of loving support, um, well, we see the results of that. There's quite a prevalence of suicide in this world, mm-hmm. in despair. Right. Of, and again, this this is related to trauma, people's reaction or response to trauma that we're experiencing. Right, right. Well, I just wanted to respond to your analogy to the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. And the part of that movie where the angel comes down to uh, be with Jimmy Stewart. And so I think that's a great analogy because of what happens in, in psychedelic-assisted therapy. Because although the, the guide slash therapist is not an angel, it's a spiritual event, and you know that it's a healing event, and it's done because of the loving presence and the mind and heart opening power of the medicine. So I think it's a wonderful analogy. I'm glad you thought of it. And you know, part of your title is spirituality and transformation, which is an integral and essential part of this sacred medicinal psychedelic healing process. It is a very spiritual transformational process, um, particularly when you consider the term spiritual in its holistic sense, that of um, seeing the world, seeing everything in a, in a holistic perspective as opposed to dividing it up and focusing, let's say, on, on the material aspect of the world and shunting the invisible and unmeasurable and unseeable aspects of the world to the side or even dismissing them altogether. Right. Yes, it is spiritual. I mean, (laughs) so for many of us who are materialistic, and I say that in a loving way, it may not be because they want to be materialistic, but they just don't see like any other way about the world. They just see, you know, the you know, the object in front of them, we got people, we got hair and bones and skin, and, you know, we got the, we got the sun and the moon, and, you know, we understand them as objects, and they just don't see that there's another part of the world, and that maybe actually the whole world is a manifestation of the spirit, of the great spirit, or of God, if people like that word, or the earth, mother, whatever words you like. So it's hard because people, a lot of people, including myself, have been 
cut off in some way or another from spirituality. And it can take some work or it can take some medicine to open up that door. And of course, it's a whole different way of living then when that door starts to open or when it really opens wide. And you see that people are not really separate and that we're not separate from the trees and the sky. And so it's a different, uh, it's a different way of being. And it's a healthier way of being, for sure, in a way that these medicines can help. You know, people, uh, We all, I want to be careful. People have, especially in Western society, this idea that, you know, just give me a pill, make me better. We have that kind of attitude for many of us. And I don't want to have people to think that that's exactly how these medicines work. But uh, they do help in sort of that way. And it's a process, too, I would say, for most of us that it's not just instantaneous. But these medicines like psilocybin and MDMA, too, for the heart opening, and can be mind opening as well, do have ability to help us understand our spiritual nature. So um, I think they are important in that way. So let's get into your psychedelic medicinal journeys. And you began with MDMA. Uh, Talk about why you and your guide began the process with MDMA um, and how MDMA um, works on us. Right. So the people, are, well, my guide, who's part of a community, over time, with a lot of experience, they have a general protocol, and, and I'm sure there's exceptions to it. But when somebody comes in and, and they're ready for healing and, and they don't walk right in the door the first time you meet, you know, you do this. That's not how it works. You have to get to know the guide, as I said, and they talk about your issues and you try to bring some of them up, get a little bit into the, more into the conscious level and, and build up this trust and love between you and the therapist. But anyway, what they usually do is when they do begin with the medicine, they usually start with one or two, usually two journeys with MDMA. And also maybe we should go back and, and clarify that I believe you spent about three months with your first therapist actually just talking about your issues and clarifying the kind of work that you wanted to go more deeply into before you started right. with the MDMA. Yeah, I think that's worth talking about, especially because a lot of the work I'm talking about is still underground at this point in time. Whatever your listeners thinks about that, that is, you know, it's not legally accepted by the government, although this is changing and we can talk about how it might be changing, which is important. But anyways, underground, and so that also means it's hard to find or can be hard to find. And so just to retrace my steps a bit, as I mentioned earlier, I got a wake-up call from my wife and brother who said, stop drinking. You got to stop drinking. There's no question about it. You have to do this or well, the relationship's over with my wife and so on. Okay, so then what do I do? I knew about Michael Pollan's book. I'd read it. So I thought, well, AA is not for me. There's some FDA-approved drugs that people say bad things about. So, I, you know, I'm going to want to try this psychedelic-assisted therapy. So well, how do you do that? I didn't, I mean, I didn't have a neighbor who did it. I didn't, I didn't know where to go. And so, I mean, I'm sort of fortunate, and I live in the San Francisco Bay Area where there's a lot of people and also a lot of relatively speaking, a lot of resources. So anyway, what I did is I went online and, uh, you know, did some internet searching. It took a couple of days just really just doing that. And I came across a very well-written essay by a licensed 
psychotherapist in the Bay Area, not too far from me. And he was experienced with these strong medicines. He had spent a couple of years in Peru in the, in the Amazonian basin, basically being an assistant shaman in a healing center there with ayahuasca as a, as a medicine. And so from his website, and well, from the essay originally, and from his essay I got to his psychotherapy practice website, I knew that this person was very, very knowledgeable about it. But it, he also made it very clear that in the United States he did not practice this with this medicine because it was not legal. But nevertheless, this was a way uh, forward, it seemed to me. I thought, well, let me start with this, this guy and we'll go from there. And so I did. And so I saw him and we talked. I told him that, you know, why I was there to maintain abstinence from drinking. I mean, there were plenty of other issues that <laughs> I hadn't really figured out at that point. But that was the obvious one. And, you know, that I wanted to try psychedelic-assisted therapy because I'd read, you know, how good it was or it could be so good. And um, he said he thought he could help me, but let's just pump the brakes here a little bit. Let's just do talk therapy. It turned out for about three months or so. Let's just slow down and talk about your issues. And, you know, we try to we'd find little fragments of memory and you kind of open them up a bit. We did some dream work and just good, you know, pretty much conventional talk therapy. And after about three months, he said, okay, I think you're ready. I'll refer you to someone in, in the area that I know who does this work underground. In other words, it actually works with the medicine in the United States. And so he referred me, and this person also is a trained therapist. So, and then I started really doing talk therapy uh, with him too. And there's a lot of women. I mentioned him, you know, there's a lot of women doing this as well as men. And so he had to get to know me, and then I had to get to know him too. And we had to establish this loving relationship, although you don't really think of it in those terms at the beginning, but that's what has to happen. So there was more talk therapy, if you will, before we actually began the work with the, the MDMA initially, and then uh, did some psilocybin mushrooms after that. So that was the path that brought me into this. And so it's not necessarily easy to find, but I think depending where you live, of course, there, you know, if you're determined, you can you can find a way, and maybe maybe you have to get on a plane, go somewhere. But I, I like the idea of not getting on a plane because there can be a fair amount of work, and to go to some place like uh, Peru or the Netherlands or somewhere for a week, uh, it could be good. But um, I think a longer term relationship is really is really the best solution. Okay, so now let's get into your experience with the MDMA and start with the way you take it, the way you approach the medicine, and then take us into the journey. And then we'll, we'll talk about the follow-up integration work. Right. Okay. Um, well, let's see. Some of the important phrases that we, we use that people might read about is set and setting. So that's important to know. Set means mindset. And setting is actually the physical environment that you do the journey in. And they both have to be well considered. In terms of the mindset, that's really what you're doing in the preparation work, which is like really understanding. You have to get some understanding of like what's going on, at least at, least at some level. Like I said, in the unconscious, there's a lot that we don't even quite see and understand. And you get there in time. But there's some good work you can do in preparation in talk therapy 
as well as building that relationship. And so that's the mindset and then also what we call intentions. So right before the journey, you decide on what your intentions are for that journey and you write them down and they can change. A different journey would have maybe different intentions depending what you're really trying to work on. So certainly in my early work, I was really working on early childhood things and talking about understanding what happened in my childhood and asking for love and acceptance that I didn't see and healing around that. So those would be intentions that you would write down after this fairly extensive preparation. But we're not talking years of talk therapy like some people may think of. We're talking maybe, you know, a few months or something. So it is relatively rapid, which is wonderful. Um, and then in the actual environment, maybe to start with that, I think you were suggesting I'm, I kind of paint that picture. So, you know, the day comes, you're going to do this journey. So you show up. It could be indoors. Usually it's a just one-on-one, just you and the guide therapist. Although there can be group journeys, which we can talk about later, but you don't start with a group journey. You start the one-on-one and so you go to this safe place, could be indoors or could be outdoors. I think usually indoors would be probably the first first time you would do it. And before you take the medicine, there's a, it's a spiritual event. And as I said, some of this comes from the Mazatec Indians in Mexico, although there are other elements that have been brought in. And so it's a spiritual event. There's an altar there. You put your intentions on the altar, a piece of paper written intentions on the altar, You're welcome to bring some other things for the altar, uh, which I do. Uh, A little statue of Buddha and a little brass cup to hold water and a a stone that represents water and the earth. And there's also, of course, other existing, pre-existing items on the altar. In this case, (laughs) it's it's really kind of eclectic. Uh, There was another Buddha statue. There was a candle with, uh, you know, Virgin Mary on the candle that was lit. Um, There was uh, some other objects of uh, indigenous Indian origin, Uh, a couple things. I'm not sure what they were, but uh, they were were there for a reason. And so then you sit in in front of the altar with your guide and you say a prayer. Usually the the therapist says a prayer, you know, may something to the effect, you know, may Chris be able to uh, heal what he's able to heal today. Maybe may he understand what he's ready to understand today, and uh, and it might go on a little bit longer, and then I can say a prayer or two if I want, or I might just say thank you. And then there's some Mazatec uh, tradition, smudging with sage, uh, burnt sage, the smoke, purification. So it's a, it's a traditional, and in, in, in my experience, okay, not everybody's experience will be like this. In my experience, it was really kind of a traditional and definitely spiritual set for the beginning. And then you take the medicine. The MDMA is just, of course, a capsule you swallow. It's a pretty high dose. It's not a recreational dose. Yeah, you lie down on a, uh, well, depend where you are, but I, there was a like a portable uh, mattress on the floor where I laid down. There was covers, eye shades. Uh, I had eye shades covering my eyes. So this is all introspection. So that's um, the environment. And then, of course, the guide's right there the whole time with you and skilled, as I think I mentioned before, sometimes the best thing the guide needs to do is leave you alone. But a lot of times he's there or she's there for support, maybe hold your hand. And they're occasionally talking to you a little bit, depending on what you're doing, what's happening for you. 
There even may be a little bit of dialogue, or there may be sometimes if you're quiet, the guide may come over and say, you know, how are you doing? And what's happening now? Just try to get understanding. And he he has a pad of paper. He'll write things down. If I say something, he'll write it down. So we have some sort of a record, too, of the journey. But I think that the most important thing is that it's in, it can be in, very interactive and it's very supportive. And the guide is there to help you on this journey, on this healing journey. And he's there and it, it takes hours. I don't know how many hours typically an MDMA journey may be uh, really from the beginning to the end, maybe six hours or something like that. And so he'll be there uh, or she'll be there every step of the way. So there's also music used in the journey, usually, not, not necessarily always. And I want you to talk about that and also talk about the experience you had from the MDMA, the effect that it had on you and the kind of healing experience you had during the actual journey. Right. Well, first, the music is very common for the guide to play music, especially if you're indoors where you have, you know, like electricity and a speaker or something like that. And there's an art to it. And people specialize in this field in music therapy, actually, even without these medicines. Um, But the music is used in a creative and uh, loving way with a lot of experience and people share notes and you know they the therapists you know talk about like this works in this situation and and so they have a repertoire of music that they will play and it's all very supportive and loving and it can be different things at different times it can be very a lot of times very soft it can be it can be kind of loud and, and moving when you need that you know kind of beating you know, more energetic when that's what is called for. It can be classical. It can be, I think, what people might call new age. And, and there's all all wide variety, but it's done in a skillful way. And in my experience, that uh, really artistic way to really know somehow magically, you know, what the client needs. And of course, the music does influence you in a good way and kind of helps you on that journey. It makes it, uh, helps you open up more. I think that's the bottom line. It's designed to make you feel safe and to f- feel that you're in a safe place where you can open up in all those respects. And so that takes maybe maybe to the MDMA, your question about the, well, specifically about the MDMA. It's known, people talk about it as a heart-opening drug or medicine. Let's, let's use medicine used in this context. And really heart-opening. For me, really the first time I took the journey with MDMA, and by the way, I had some pictures of my childhood, uh, me as a kid and with parents on the altar too. That was part of a couple of the first journeys. I just I thought I should mention that. It was a good way to connect with that part of my early life. Well, anyway, back to the MDMA. So um, it's heart-opening, and my emotions... You know, I would think, you know, I had emotions before, but <laughs> it, it uh, I, I think I mentioned in my book is like I was in a glass cage and like somebody took a hammer and just shattered the uh, the glass cage. Or maybe the expression was it blew the doors off my emotions. It just, wow. And I don't mean just during the journey. I mean <laughs> ever after. <laughs> Uh, after that journey, it just totally transformed 
my emotional state, my, my ability to connect and express my emotions. It's heart opening and it's also mind opening too. It's, it's not just, you know, people call MDMA the love drug. It, uh, it's known to release a lot of oxytocin, for example, which is important hormone in our brains. And that's all good. And, you know, the biochemistry is all good. I'm all for the biochemistry, <laughs> being a chemist. But uh, I'm also uh, very much into the spiritual aspect. It opens our hearts in some way that helps us connect to uh, the spiritual life. And back to your, your thing about uh, the Jimmy Stewart movie, you know, it gives you in the context with somebody there. I mean, your guide is there. And that is really important part of the healing. It opens your heart uh, with the guide there who has an open heart too for you to visit these traumatizing experiences and have a a healing experience rather than a re-traumatizing experience. And sometimes we call missing experience where the love is there in revisiting a place where the love was not there. So during the... uh medicinal journey with the MDMA, did you actively seek to go down into those past psychological and emotional traumas in order to heal them while you were experiencing your heart being opened up, or did that just arise spontaneously? That's a great question, and I'm not sure it's totally one or the other, but I think mostly it's the latter. It just arose. But remember, again, all the preparation and the intentions that you've done leading up to it. So you've really plowed the ground, so to speak. And then you just kind of let go, I think, mostly. And then these things will naturally come up. So I think that's pretty much more like that. Because one of the things in these journeys, whether it be with MDMA or psilocybin, it's not a thinking activity, prefrontal cortex and you know, analytical and that kind of stuff. Um, So I would say mostly, you know, with the preparation, the value and purpose of the preparation and opening that door, then these things just naturally start to come up. And I think that's a better description of how it works. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's say after the journey has concluded, talk about what happens afterwards and then talk about the integration work and how the guide is involved in that or assists you with that integration work. Right. So immediately after the journey, I mean, while you're still there, you know, you come down from the effect of the medicine. And that doesn't happen, you know, in one minute. It takes, you know, maybe an hour or two to slowly come down back to the normal state. So there's that period of time, which is important. And the music typically will uh, change at that, you know, part of the journey. It's still really kind of part of the journey to a different kind of music as your uh, psyche is in a different place. And then towards the very end, you know, when you're getting closer and closer to normal state, there'll usually be some conversation with the therapist about your experience. You talk about it. Whatever needs to come up, you talk about it. He may uh, or she may prompt you a little bit about this, what about that? But a lot of it is, you know, you're just kind of opening up about your experience. And it could be anything, you know, really that comes to mind. And then also as part of that, usually this is done, I shouldn't forget, usually this is done over 
<laughs> in my case anyway, a beautiful plate of fruit and nuts. So you, I, I didn't say this, but you fast uh, before, not a long fast, but you fast before the journey, before the medicine. And, um, and it's a physical endeavor. It's safe, but it's a physical as well as um, can be challenging. And you be hungry and you spend a lot of psychic energy and also sometimes physical energy. And the guy will bring a plate of uh, beautiful, in my case, beautifully prepared, artistically prepared fruit and nuts to eat while you talk at the very end of the time together that day. And then that kind of maybe puts the wrapper on that day, that, that journey itself. And then the instructions are basically just to rest after that. The rest of the day, don't really think about it, don't worry about it, just rest. He did write down notes, as I said earlier. He'll give those to you, but he will tell you don't look at them that day. And just rest, because it takes, uh, uh, the mind is kind of working, even though you're resting. And uh, connections are happening, there's neuroplasticity, and it's a big event. So you do want to just rest. But then that comes into the whole integration part of the process, which is the following days, and actually weeks, or months, you could even say. And the integration process can be extensive and, and super important because you don't want just a journey and then like that's it, because it won't become really part of the fabric of your life, the, the true healing fabric of your life. So the integration begins with talk. Uh, you come in and have uh, used for multiple sessions, like a 50-minute you know, talk session with the therapist about you know your experience and what it meant and what you learned and what you healed. And, but also the therapist will typically give you some more stuff depending on you, what kind of person you are, what kind of where you are. They may give you a variety of things. Like this is one example in a later trip that my, where my father came up, my guide asked me to write a letter to my father. But there could be journaling in general. There could be art. Uh, there could be walks in nature, physical activities, music of different sorts, whether it be listening, singing, playing, if you have some other skills. And, and not just one thing. It's usually a mixture. But it's done in a skillful way to connect with that experience so that you know it becomes part of the healing fabric of your life. So it's a really important part of the whole process is to integrate it. Otherwise, it's kind of pointless. So talk about what you learned from that experience, including the integration process, and perhaps take us through the unfolding of that integration process and, and what you learned along, along the way, however long that may have taken. Well, I took multiple journeys. And, and what was the spacing between each journey as well? Right. Um, typically, two or three months between each journey. It could vary on the person, but that's how it was for me. It's not something you do like the next week at least in the community that I got connected to. Um, make sure I understand, remember your question, Tony. So what did I, what did I learn? What did I heal in my case? Was that, what did that? you, what did you learn from the experience? And also what did you learn from the integration work as it unfolded? Right. Um, well, I, I learned actually some events and things that happened to me that were not conscious, you know, before I started but became conscious. 
There was even into infancy in the second MDMA journey that was definitely pre-verbal stuff happening. And I would even maybe use, instead of learn, I would say heal. Although there's some learning absolutely about that. And when, I, when I think of learning, I kind of think of... Uh, yeah, definitely uh, include the healing because that's, that's the essential um, intention of the journey. Right. So the trauma that uh, I and many, most of us have found in childhood especially, but again, it can be in adulthood too, or adolescence, we react to it. It's overwhelming. We can't process it. It's just too much. We're not capable. But nature gives us a way to survive. And then we, we have different ways of surviving, different people. It depends on the environment and depends on the person. We have different ways of surviving. But they, what they really do is they, they break us up into pieces in the psyche, so to speak. And depending on the level of, of trauma, there can be even dissociation and all kinds of things, which we could talk about for a long time. But it basically beha- makes us behave in a way, maybe uh, we talk sometimes about a false persona. We, have to, we become a certain way because we had to, to survive, because we have this innate survival instinct. But we had to survive an environment that was overwhelming that we really couldn't, we couldn't process at that time. We just didn't have the wherewithal. You know, you can think of all kinds of childhood traumas, whether they're really horrific or even the subtle ones like, effectively, you're not going to get the love unless you behave properly, which is traumatic. We don't usually use those words for that, but um, behavior modification, even well-intentioned, sometimes can be traumatic. It really changes who we are. So it has these very deep effects in our psyche, how our mind is working, and it breaks it up into pieces and causes all sorts of reactive behaviors that are kind of, uh, well, they're unhealthy. Let's put it that way. They're unhealthy for how we interact with the world, for the people and our planet around us. And plenty of evidence of that. But also how we hurt ourselves and how we're not free. How we become a prisoner of our own armor or our own mask that we wear. My guest is Chris Becker. He's a scientist and inventor. He has a PhD in chemistry from UC Berkeley, and he's done postdoctoral work at MIT, and he's the author of this fascinating new book, Healing with Psychedelics, Essays and Poems on Spirituality and Transformation. And so the healing process is, I don't know, maybe even beyond words, but somehow the melting, the integration of these pieces back to a more holistic way of being. And that holistic way of being is with ourselves, it's with the people around us, it's with our community, it's with the planet. In fact, I want to mention Francois Borza's book, Consciousness Medicine, where she spends a lot of time talking about integration and the healing process and how it is interacting on all these different levels to become complete and really fulfilling. So the healing, some of it is beyond words, I think. You know, what's going on in the brain and in the soul, in the heart, that puts these pieces back together in a way that's loving and connected in a a spiritual way and releases us from these old patterns that we used, you know, because we needed to. And I think of Alice Miller's book, The Drama of the Gifted Child, a very short book, but powerful, about how gifted child, you know, some people think of, oh, you know, a real smart kid. 
Well, no, <laughs> gifted child means some child who survives, who uses their gift of nature to figure out a way to survive a situation that's overwhelming. You do learn intellectually, you learn about some things, but I think they're second place, if you will, to the nonverbal healing, heart healing and deep psyche healing. And a lot of things do get released from the unconscious that come up into the conscious, and that can happen in MDMA, but also can happen with psilocybin. A psilocybin tends to be a little bit of a rougher ride, but uh, it can be a deep healing. It has a way of uh, uncovering a lot of uh, hidden material. So the integration takes place with many facets, singing, uh, writing, uh, walks in nature, exercises, journaling, and talking to your therapist, and how the healing is at a very deep level. Um, you briefly mentioned how psilocybin can be a rougher journey than the MDMA. Are there any other distinctions in your experience with psilocybin from your experience with the MDMA? In my book, I have a name for it. I call it the Celestial Washing Machine. It's kind of my fun name for it. Because if you think about a washing machine, you know, it cleans you, right? Or it cleans, you know, whatever's inside the washing machine, in this case, you. But, you know, there's an agitator, you know, it bunches you around back and forth in the process. It's a very safe medicine. It's also earth medicine. I have taken it in the Mazatec tradition as a sacrament. Uh, dried mushroom, or it could be fresh mushroom. You take it with the front teeth. You don't chew it up like food because it's not, it's not food. You take it with your front teeth, you roll it around, keep it in your mouth quite a while before swallowing it. So uh, that's just kind of a starting point. That's the difference of taking a, a capsule of MDMA. But it is of the earth. And a, a lot of people, myself included, feel that there's something special about taking something that's really of the earth. And it is a rougher ride for most people, usually. I think people worry about bad trips because so much has been written about quote-unquote bad trips. But I'd like to let people know that they don't need to worry about that. They may have some challenging experiences if they do this in a supported way that I've talked about with a therapist guide. They may have some challenging moments, but they're all for the better. They're in a safe and loving container. So you don't really get into these bad things that you know, can happen when you have a bad trip. You know, you go to a concert, you know, a lot of, especially young people, get themselves in these situations where that they really shouldn't be in. So you don't have to worry about that. But the thing about the psilocybin is it tends to be a little more spiritual. Ego dissolution can tend to happen. And I don't know if we have time, we can talk about that. But it also has a way of revealing hidden parts of your psyche, hidden events, hidden memories, that when you can bring up uh, in the journey can allow for a new and more complete healing experience. Go ahead and talk about your experience of ego dissolution. Well, this doesn't always happen. It actually can happen with MDMA, although not as commonly. And it doesn't always happen with psilocybin mushrooms either. And they usually at a higher dose. These Again, these are therapeutic doses a higher dose than you would use, you know, either do it yourself or recreational people. These are higher doses. So at the higher doses, something can happen for the person where, in my case, it did happen. It has happened a couple times where 
you know, it's like the words say, ego dissolution. So usually, you know, we walk around, we have a sense of ourselves. You know, here's my body, here's my memories, this is my name, this is who I am, this is where I live, and so on. And the first time I had a ego dissolution experience, it was actually a group journey. And the journey itself, you know, once you actually take the medicine, you're, you have your blindfolds on and you're pretty much doing your own journey. In any case, my intentions in that particular case was to be a channel of your love. This is a, a phrase that maybe some of the Christians might remember from, I think, St. Francis of Assisi, to be a channel of God's love. Or, you know, a bodhisattva, the Buddhists would say, to be a bodhisattva. So that was part of my intentions. And so I was on this journey. Uh, it was actually outdoors in the group setting, but it was really just my journey with my eye shades on. And I remember saying that phrase, may I be a channel of your love. And at some point, I felt like I heard a voice, you know, like the Great Spirit was talking to me and said, well, okay, but you have to die first. And with that, I just went up into the sky. I had no sense of my body, no sense of fear, no sense of worry. Oh, am I going to lose something? And it was a beautiful, wonderful, mystical experience that is, you know, truly beyond words. And I think when people hear the words ego dissolution, they get scared because, (laughs) oh no, (laughs) what happens if I lose my mind and, uh, you know, I I, I can't find my way back and all these things and I die or, you know, am I going to die here and that kind of thing. You know, with the ego, because the ego doesn't want to let go. So it starts to it starts to make all these things come up, you know, like, oh, maybe you're going to die, or maybe you'll lose your mind, or uh, this could be really scary. But in the actual event, when it happens, it's fabulous. It's wonderful, because there is no fear. Uh, there's just the beauty of the spirit to be in that spiritual, great spiritual place, which is really a healing place. You can feel the love of the great spirit, and... It's a fantastic experience, but I don't think people should go on journeys with that as a goal, but it can happen, and it's nothing to be afraid of. So now I'd love for you to talk about your group experience, because that was different in in several ways, particularly the more elaborateness of the preparation, the day of the journey. Okay, so... With this community that I work with, every now and then they'll do a group journey, and I was offered to join. It was the summertime, and uh, we went outside for it. People can do group journeys inside in the winter and all that stuff, but uh, this was outside in a part of nature in the redwood forest uh, that was isolated. We didn't have to worry about some stranger walking around, so it was a safe container. This was a fairly small group. I think there were six of us total, including myself, and our guide, the guide that I had been working with, and he brought along an assistant. And they're totally not taking any medicine. They're totally 100% sober, if you will. So uh, the preparation, as you as you alluded to, Tonio, is uh, something different, something special. Um, there is a place about, something about group work, uh, as people know in the psychology field, can be very powerful because we are social animals. That's how we're built and we relate to people and that our injuries can come from relating and our healing comes from relating. And I think around 10 in the morning, we met at this place, our rendezvous spot, and we drove there. We, there was a place to park. 
and then we hiked in. It wasn't a big hike, but it was maybe a oh, a 20-minute hike in to this uh, nature area that was private. And so I hadn't met any of the other people before. Only only the guide was a person I knew. I didn't know the assistant guide before either. And this was not a first time for the people. They had all had at least some experience, a couple journeys before. So we hiked in. We found this a little clearing in the Redwood Forest. And we had like a little tarp and a pad and a sleeping bag and our blindfolds with us. And there was food and water we brought in and good weather. And then there was like some group processes. So we set up our camp, if you will. No tents. It was all open air under the stars. And then we sat around in a circle and we talked and we took turns. And we each talked for maybe 10 minutes or so about how we got here and why we're here. So they're very brief in my case. When it was my turn, I talked about how quitting alcohol was the catalyst, if you will, for why I was here. And I told people I was a trained scientist, uh, that I was in my third marriage. I had, we haven't really talked about this, but part of the, the <laughs> part of the symptoms sometimes are a little not so obvious as drinking. They're like how you relate to your spouse or how you relate to other people in terms of like, for example, not being able to be really intimate and other aspects, which we could spend a lot of time on, things like that. So I, I talked about that, the, the difficulty I had in relationships a little bit. And it was pretty short, like I said, 10 minutes or so. But it was all really open. I mean, there was no, I, I don't think from anybody, but certainly for me, I wasn't hiding anything. And uh, just very straightforward, like, this is the path that brought me here today. So we went around in a circle, each taking our turn, telling our story. And that was also, you know, really getting to know each other and accepting each other. Accepting, I wouldn't say faults, I would say injuries. I would say pain that we had each had endured and, you know, and the symptoms that manifested, you know, as a consequence. So that was the beginning of the group journey. And let's see, the next thing we did is we built a nature altar very near our our little place. There was a tree, a big tree, and uh, we were instructed, the guide said, let's build an altar in front of that tree. And this we did silently. And I also remember taking off my shoes and socks. I was barefoot on the on the redwood needles on the ground and uh, feeling the, the earth beneath me. And so silently, we took about an hour and we built this beautiful nature altar out of uh, uh, just the, the, uh, the stuff on the forest floor. It could be pieces of bark, a branch, uh, needles, pine cones, or, well, redwood cones, um, just whatever we found and uh, built this beautiful altar all together in a silent fashion. And that was a, a very, very together activity. And then the next activity, as I recall, was another bonding activity where each of us, we were standing in a little kind of circle, two by two. So you would stand in front of facing one of the other people on the journey and maybe just a foot away. So you're really quite close looking in each other's eyes. Well, the guide sang a, like a little song, something to the effect of, here's a broken child just like you who deserves to be loved. And he had some other variations on that. Here's a, here's a broken child just like you who's looking for peace. Um, things like that. And he would sing that for about a minute 
while you looked into each other's eyes, and then you would switch to another person. And you did that so enough time so that everybody had paired up with everybody else by the time you finished. And that was a very bonding and beautiful thing. And then before we took the medicine, which wasn't until around dusk, we had one more activity to do, and that we did alone. He instructed us to go into the forest, not too far, don't get lost. Uh, There were a bunch of different paths that kind of radiated out from this center place we were at. And go into the forest by yourself and find a place that looks right and make a deathbed out of the forest material and then lie down in that deathbed and contemplate your own death. Uh, However that's manifested and uh, maybe if you want to say goodbyes or whatever, reflect on your life. Anyway, go out into the forest and make a deathbed and lie down, and I'll call you back in two or three hours. So that's a while. So, okay, so I took a path. I walked maybe about 10 minutes or so away from uh, our campsite, and I wanted to look for a place, uh, a suitable place. You don't want, <laughs> if you're going to go die, pick a good place, right? Uh, it made sense. So, uh, you know, just intuitively, your, your spirit wants to do that. And so I walked out until I found a place that looked very kind of special, kind of, kind of peaceful. I was on this very narrow path, dirt path, and on the left-hand side there were these ferns. It was very pretty, but there was sloping ground on the left side, and I didn't want to lie on a, on a slope. I wanted a flat. But on the right side of that path, there was a little clearing, just a small clearing, a bed of redwood needles on the ground, and, you know, some debris around it, you know, that had fallen on a branch, a redwood cone, and so on. So uh, what I did is I, I cleared off an area, you know, about whatever, two or three by six or so feet. And then I made a border out of the material around there, some uh, little twigs and branches, some redwood cones. I made a border, a rectangular border, that would be a border around my deathbed. And so I did that. And then I um, laid down. And it was late afternoon at that point. The light was changing. I could see at first the, the light, the sunlight was on the redwood trees. There were redwood trees there, big ones, little ones. And that, especially late afternoon light really made the bark, the, the red bark bright and the green needles green. It was really beautiful. And the sun was getting lower and lower. And for just a moment or so, it touched my face and I remember thinking, I don't know if that was a hello or a goodbye, that sunlight on my face. And so I contemplated my death as I was instructed to. I said goodbyes. I said goodbyes to all the people that I loved one by one and took my time and, you know, how I'd spent my time here on earth and then uh, kind of rested towards the end. And then at some point I was just resting peacefully on my deathbed and I heard a bell and he was coming back, you know, to gather people and gathered me. And we came back before the ceremony. And that actually was the, I mentioned earlier, the ego dissolution or dying experience. And that was the same, the same journey. So I think the deathbed in some ways prepared me for the ego death. And you might say spiritual rebirth. So at that point, we came back as a group that we had a, uh, although we had built this nature altar, there was another quote unquote regular 
portable regular altar there that we had, and we had all brought some objects for that altar, and there and the guide had brought some, and the the guide and the assistant guide were sitting on either side of that altar, and at this point we each came up one by one to accept our medicine. He asked again, "How much do you want? You know, how many grams you want?" These are things we would talk about before, but you know, people can change their minds. So I think for mine was five or five and a half grams of the mushrooms that particular day. And so we each took our medicine and then we went and sat down on our sleeping bags, sat up eating our medicine and as sacrament, uh, as I mentioned before, with our front teeth and began our journey, then put on our eye mask as sun was setting. So were there any other particular experiences that occurred during that journey besides the ego dissolution that you feel are worth mentioning? Well, first of all, again, the guide and the assistant guide would come around and support. How are you, if you're quiet, you know, I was pretty quiet, I think, for some of it. I uh, came over and said, how are you doing? Uh, very quietly just knelt down and then whispered in my ear, how are you doing? And I said, I'm doing fine. I'm, I think I, maybe I said I'm uh, healing or something like that. At one point, he did some energy work on me for a little bit. But mostly on that particular journey, he left me alone because a couple of the other participants needed more attention. And it's good you mentioned this. So there was a woman who was next to me. You know, we were spaced around like spokes on a wheel around a circle and maybe six or eight feet away from me. And she was having a more difficult, more challenging, let's say, journey. And so she was making some noise and there was some crying, you know, that I could hear that became part of my journey, and also maybe later in her journey, um, sighs. I remember her making these sighs, these big sighs. Or I, <laughs> I told her later, they sounded like angelic sighs. They were these ah, beautiful, otherworldly, beautiful sighs. But there was also times where there was crying and there was stress, and I could hear that, but it was not disturbing. It became part of the journey and accepting of each other, very loving of each other. And it didn't affect when I had my, uh, let's say, trip to the stars, my ego dissolution, if you will, my uh, make me a channel of love experience. There was no interference with that. But you could hear and did hear other people. Sometimes they make noise. But it was all in such a loving container that it was, you know, for me, and I think for, for almost anybody in that situation, it's not a problem. It's just part of being together. Mm-hmm. So how did that journey conclude? Um, we took her medicine around 7 p.m., around dusk, or 8 or something like that. And then you took your medicine, and then after about 45 minutes or an hour, he rang a bell, which signified the beginning of the journey. And then... After four or five hours, he rang the bell again as people were coming down from their journey. And then so this would be two in the morning or something like that. And so what he did is he set up in the middle of the circle, he put down a blanket with candles on it, and then set out a beautiful assortment of food, fruit, fruit and nuts, essentially, I think. And we came together as a circle. We got together, and it was very bonding and nourishing, and we all had some nourishment, a little talking. I don't remember a lot of talking. And then we went back to our sleeping bags to get some sleep. 
and we slept until, you know, whenever the sunlight woke us up. And then to conclude our time together, we had a bigger breakfast. We had, again, good food. We took communally. There was more conversation, a lot of loving, and there was some singing. And then also, you know, just before we broke camp, if you will, we sat around in a circle and we talked about our experiences. So we each took, again, 10 minutes or so and kind of told everybody else about what happened for us and how how it was for us. And so I told my story about my uh, mystical experience. I had the uh, ego dissolution experience, and uh, but other people told their stories too. And, and then we hiked out and said our goodbyes, but have been in touch, and some of us uh, still see each other. So reflecting on those experiences and your life prior to those experiences, how has that changed your worldview? And particularly in terms of the times we're living in today? Wow. Um, they're very challenging times, as I'm not telling anybody something they don't <laughs> deeply understand already. I think how it changed my worldview, well, that and some of the other journeys and just the, the, the medicine work I've done with my guide, the psychedelic-assisted therapy, has changed my worldview in that I feel part of the world, more part of the world, less isolated, and that goes down to, uh, you know, the objects right in front of me, talking to you, Tonio, the people in my life, my loved ones, my wife, children, and people I meet, whether it be in the grocery store or old friends. Um, I just feel more connected, but also to the earth. I think that was a wonderful experience being outside. The deathbed experience in the Redwood Forest was very profound. And then the journey, towards the end of the journey, again, it was nighttime, I took my eye mask off towards the later part of it, and uh, it was a very clear sky. The stars were brilliant. We were in this little clearing, as I said, in a very big redwood forest, very tall trees. But there were stars overhead in kind of like a circle where this clearing was. And it was truly connecting. And, you know, you get this sense of how we're all connected we're all part of each other. We're all, there's no separation. The separation is really just um, kind of a mental construct. And so when you see what's happening in the world and all the hate and division and racism and things like that, it, oh, it just uh, it hurts you to... Wow. It just hurts you to see it and it hurts you to feel it. And then what's happening to our earth and how people don't respect our earth, and um, and forest fires have been out here in the West Coast. Maybe some people call climate fires. Those are not normal. I mean, fires are normal, but not like this. Also, you know, how we're trashing the oceans, and, you know, we just basically raping the earth. You know, people do that for money. And, you know, sometimes they have good intentions, but mostly they don't think about what's going to be left for the children and our grandchildren. And so it can be painful to, to observe, but at the same time, I like to say that even in the time of COVID, and that's a collective trauma, and the smoke around here in the California and the West Coast is collective trauma, and the political environment, if you will, is collective trauma. We are all being traumatized, and that means that we really need to find healing Nevertheless, 
I have this deep faith that we are going to find a way. We are going to find a way to healing, and it may not be easy, and it may not be overnight, but we are going to get through this, and we are going to find a way, uh, find a way to heal each other and uh, heal the earth. But we need everybody to do that together. Mm, that is so beautiful. My guest has been Chris Becker. He's a scientist and inventor with a Ph.D. in chemistry from UC Berkeley with postdoctoral work at MIT, and he's the author of this fascinating new book that we've been talking about, Healing with Psychedelics, Essays and Poems on Spirituality and Transformation. This has been a really, really wonderful conversation. I'm so grateful to you. Oh, my pleasure, Tonio, for having me. I really do appreciate it. And be well in these challenging times. You too, to all your listeners as well. Thank you. any of the show or would like to hear it again or would like to share it with somebody you can find the show and all magical mystery tour shows at soundcloud.com slash wgdr that's soundcloud.com slash wgdr and that's it for this magical mystery tour thank you so much for listening and until next time take good care of yourselves and each other So why I wanna go with